I was born to a family of runners. My parents are both runners. My dad got involved with the very first London Marathon in 1981. And I actually grew up kind of rebelling against it because I had my entire childhood stood at the finish line of cold and wet um, cross-country courses and all sorts. I ended up starting running when I was 21 and I'd gone to a New Year's party and there was sort of a group of us youngsters in one room and my parents and all their running friends were um, having a few drinks in another room. And somebody came in and said, uh, yeah, what's your New Year's resolution? And uh, I-, I bet it's not to run a half marathon because you couldn't manage that and of course that's a bit of a red rag to a bull so that year I did my first half marathon and then you know you know how it goes kind of one thing leads to another before you know it you're running marathons and then sort of inspired by my dad I when he he'd been ultra running for quite some time but he went out and did a uh, marathon de Saab in 2012 And when he got back, I thought, actually, maybe I quite fancy that. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Running Tales podcast with me, Craig Lewis. This week's guest, Helen Ramwell, didn't always want to run. Despite coming from a family full of runners, Helen rebelled. Until at one family party, she was told she'd never be able to do a half marathon. The challenge was too much to resist and Helen's running career was underway. That first half was soon conquered, slowly, according to Helen, and a succession of marathons followed, along with the Marathon de Saabs, aka the toughest foot race in the world, which she ran with her dad, Richard. Sadly, Richard has since passed away, but Helen was able to honour his memory when she completed another multi-day ultra at the end of 2023, the five-day, 123-mile capital-to-country ultra through Nepal and the foothills of the Himalayas. I spoke to Helen about the women's ultra-running scene, pregnancy and running, and why she has a reputation for being competitive. But I started our conversation by asking her about her most recent event, the 43-mile country-to-capital-ultra that starts in Wendover and winds its way into London, and about its go-beyond challenge sister event in Nepal. Yeah, I've actually done a number of their events. So this weekend was my 11th country to capital, which was amazing. And I really enjoy a a post-Christmas long run to kind of burn off the mince pies a little bit. The mud's always a challenge at this time of year, but um, very fun and a nice opportunity to connect with a few people in the community that I know and and see everybody there. Uh, And then uh, last November was uh, Nepal which was capital to country Um, but yes like you said very different in terms of a multi-stage event uh, 123 miles we covered over five days the elevation was about 27 and a half thousand feet over the course of the the week and equal amount of um, descent so much more um, of an (laughs) organization event in terms of having to prep all the kit and the food uh, it was self-sufficient, um, albeit they put out tents and gave us hot water at night time and gave us water during the day as well. But both really enjoyable in, in different measures. And then historically, I've also done their uh, Thames Trot, although I think they've renamed it now to the Thames Trail. So um, that's yeah. another good fun one and another one which is very muddy. <laughs> and and in terms of the, these long runs, is running something that you've always done and has it always been ultra running and ridiculous challenges interesting question so I was born to a family of runners my parents are both runners my dad got involved with the very first London marathon in 1981 
And I actually grew up kind of rebelling against it because I had my entire childhood stood at the finish line of cold and wet um, cross-country courses and all sorts. In fact, I've been to the London Marathon nearly every year of my entire life, apart from when I messed up the dates of getting married and actually got married on the same weekend. <laughs> so there's been one exception. But um, I ended up starting running when I was 21. And I'd gone to a New Year's party and there was sort of a group of us youngsters in one room and my parents and all their running friends were um, having a few drinks in another room. And somebody came in and said, uh, yeah, what's your New Year's resolution? And uh, I, I bet it's not to run a half marathon because you couldn't manage that. And of course, that's a bit of a red rag to a bull. So that year I did my first half marathon. And then, you know, you know how it goes. Kind of one thing leads to another. Before you know it, you're running marathons and then sort of inspired by my dad I when he he'd been ultra running for quite some time but he went out and did uh Marathon de Saab in 2012 and when he got back I thought actually maybe I quite fancy that and I don't know what drove me to that but that was when my ultra running journey started so I'm still a kind of unusual blend of both road racing and ultra racing um and, and enjoying trails but for me they serve different purposes and um I, I think like most runners, it's kind of an addiction. And I I just like the mental headspace. I I like being out in the fresh air. I like the community aspect. Um, and I think you meet lots of very interesting and very different profiles when you're out and about running. Yeah, de- definitely. I, I want to talk about all of that and certainly talk about MBS and, and about how your, how your dad inspired you as well uh, a little bit more. But the first question that, that kind of comes to mind is, is how did that first half marathon go? I, I assume you managed to do it. <laughs> I did manage to do it. And it was very, very slow, certainly by the standards set by the rest of my family. I perhaps won't share what the time is, but um, I think it probably still is my PW. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually haven't done that many half marathons for less than 20 over the last 20 years, but um, a lot more marathons once I got into it. <laughs> but as you said, you must have enjoyed it enough to find something in running and not just to go, not to turn back at the next family gathering and go, well, I've done it now. That proved you all <laughs> wrong. That's it. Well, yeah, I think uh, once I'd started and sort of got into it, it got into the routine. I think a lot of it is about routine, isn't it? And kind of finding how it fits into your week. And sometimes your life changes and you have to find a new routine. But that's how you kind of maintain balance in your life. And I think that's quite important, certainly for me. <laughs> so you, you got into running, you, you you started to move along, you started to do bigger and, well, better races and and, uh, and and get a little bit quicker as well, as you said. And you did come on to doing this challenge of uh, MDS. I mean, what was, what was that like? And uh, I suppose, first of all, what was people's reaction when you turned around and said, I'm going to do the Marathon de Sarve? I think there was quite a lot of people quite shocked, particularly some of those family friends. <laughs> because I'd been so sort of so much of an anti-runner when I was a teenager and I was still quite young at that stage. And so sort of people that had known me when I was younger were very surprised that I was really into it. But I think or I, I think a lot of people really appreciate. I know within the running community there's a lot of differing opinions about MDS. But I think most people do appreciate that it is a pretty tough physical challenge, certainly for a layman. And Mm. I think there's also a huge amount of organisational elements for for getting yourself 
um, prepped and ready for the start and, and keeping yourself going all the way through. I mean, that's evidenced by the number of people that don't make it to the end. So I think no matter what what kind of group or community within my friendship groups that I I was telling about it, um, everybody was quite impressed. And I think that's almost part of part of the things that spur you on to do it, isn't it? In terms of, you know, when you feel like there's a bit of uh, appreciation for what, what you're trying to achieve, which is lovely mm. and uh, certainly very humbling. <laughs> I'm going to ask about doing it with, with your dad, but I just thought about that that second part that you you mentioned there in terms of the attitude of ultra runners, perhaps extreme runners to to MDS. There's this strange sort of hierarchy within within running these extreme events, which comes into it, where some people will even look down their nose at something like MDS as strangely commercial. I mean, this is all miles ahead of my thing. I've done one at one fifty k ultra, so looking at any of these things, I just think they're incredible. But but it, it does exist, doesn't it? It it does, and I do find it in some respects a little bit sad because I think one of the joys of running is it a lot. Certainly, one of the things that I like about it is that it allows you to get out and experience different things, and different things might be doing a local event or it might be traveling around the world and meeting different types of people. For sure, I can understand why people see it as being commercialized because it has become quite a big enterprise and it is expensive, which of course is prohibitive for mm. some people. And I, I understand that that can be inflammatory in some cases, but I don't think that should restrict people from wanting to do MDS or indeed any other big run that costs a little bit of money. There, There are ways of being able to if you have the privilege of being able to go, you shouldn't be embarrassed to take the opportunity, I think, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I think I think that makes sense. Look, I mean, people may turn around and say that it's wrong to go on holiday to Barbados because not everyone can afford to go on holiday to Barbados. But it, it, if I get the chance to do it, it's not stopping me going there. And I think that's perhaps the same with some of these races and that they are whatever people might say they are so iconic, aren't they? Absolutely. And it is sort of one of the ones that, my drivers is I I like to do some of these big ones because it's part of your identity, part of the experience and credibility within the within the ultra running community. Yeah, and, and what was it like to do it with your dad? That must have been pretty amazing. Well, there's a bit of a story there actually. As I said, he'd done he was a big ultra runner and he'd done a lot of events. Um, he'd completed MDS in 2012. And actually, when we started in 2014, we were going to be the first dad and daughter to have ever done it together, which is something a little bit different and special and, and nice. And I've had a great experience of doing a lot of running with my parents, but especially my, my dad. And I think you get to know people on a very different level when you're running side by side rather than sat in front of the telly or, or whatever it might be that you do with your family. So I feel very um, lucky to have had that time with him. However. So we go out to Morocco. He'd actually had food poisoning a few weeks previously. And he started being sick on the first day. So the course, as you'll know, changes every year, varies quite a lot. Our first day was unfortunately the toughest by far. We were in 50 degree heat straight away with a full pack and on to the biggest sand dunes that the course covers. So we had a really tough first day. He was sick over 10 times during the, the time we were out on the course. So pretty ill. 
And then the next day we got up and again, he started vomiting straight away virtually as we hit the heat. He he didn't weep for a few hours. And so I was starting to get quite concerned. And we got to about 10 miles in on the second day. And he said, I'm just going to sit here. There was a little, there was a medical van that had driven out into the desert. And there was a very small slither of shade down the side of it. So uh, he wanted to go and sit in the shade. So he said, you go on to checkpoint two and I'll see you there later or I'll see you at the end today. So I cracked on as instructed and I didn't really see him again after that. So what had happened is they'd given him some anti-sickness medicine. He'd got going again and he said the last thing he could remember was getting to the top of one of the sand dunes, seeing the checkpoint and then he can't remember getting there. And he woke up lying in a tent, having received six litres of drip. So he passed out. And uh, so once they give you a drip, you're you're disqualified. Um, So then they don't normally allow you back onto the camp because of various cheating issues in terms of swapping kit and things like that. But in our instance, they were they were very kind and they let him um, just visit uh, our tent and say, look, I've been taken off the course. He had to leave all his bag and kit behind when he just popped in and they gave him 10 minutes just to tell us what was going on. And then they um, shipped him off and that was that. So I ended up doing the rest of the event alone, which was really sad because that was not what we'd gone out to intend to do. But in some respects, I think it gave me a different drive to what I was expecting because I knew that he would be willing me to get to the end and it sort of gave me a reason to complete in a different way to what what I'd kind of planned. And then on the final day, when um, they do the charity 10K after the formal event is finished, I remember I was walking with some of my tent mates and uh, he sort of emerged over the sand dunes in the distance like a mirage. <laughs> so I was very relieved to see that um, he was on good form. So he was all fine, but he actually passed away a couple of years ago. And it made me really sad because I found a few of his notebooks and he'd been writing a few various different things about different parts of his life but one of the chapters that he'd written he was sort of helping us write his own eulogy I think one of the chapters he'd written was about failures and on his list of failures in his life he put he'd written MDF 2014 and I thought that's really sad it's not a failure because it wasn't his fault that he'd been ill and he'd completed it previously so there's no no shame in that as far as I'm concerned but um yeah nice to have kind of done many experiences together like that yeah, I, I did. I did wonder, and you're probably not as cruel as 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 I might be in that situation. Whether there might have been a bit of daughter versus daddy bragging rights at the end of it when you <laughs> managed to finish and he hadn't. Well, I did milk it a little bit as, <laughs> yeah. as we crossed the final line, messing around doing the M bot and the kind of uh, <laughs> various different poses at the finish line. But you know, I was very gentle because he had been really ill. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And you mentioned, obviously, that your, your dad sadly passed away. And I know that that was a, a major part of you going out to Nepal to do the capital to to, to, to country race. And I think when we spoke before, you, you said that um, that you almost felt like you were running with him again there. Yeah, I think because we'd run so much together over the years, running's kind of become my thing where if I need to go into that space where I'm spending time thinking about him, I often sort of I'm not very superstitious but I sort of feel his presence when I'm running because I can feel him on my shoulder willing me on and um, 
having had COVID and I've had um, two children in the last couple of years, I haven't done much multi-stage or overnight um, events because I've had young children to look after. So Nepal was the first one for a while. And I decided to do it partly because I felt like it, that it would be a good opportunity to kind of process a lot of what had happened with my dad. And it took a while, but certainly by the third or fourth day, I think out in the mountains, it, Nepal's a very spiritual country anyway. And uh, I actually found myself talking to him for a little while and got a bit emotional and then decided I couldn't run and cry at the same time. So uh, that that kind of finished that. But I certainly got the time to absorb that information and sort of process the whole previous um, couple of years. So that was really useful for me personally. Now, now, a little birdie has told uh, me that once you're out there doing some of these ultra races and these multi-day races, that that sometimes you can get a little bit competitive as well. Is is that true or have they been lying to me? I think everybody's a tiny bit competitive. <laughs> you know, I'm not really good enough to be competitive. And I'll take, I'll rewind back to what we were saying about that first half marathon. I definitely do not qualify myself as a fast runner at all. However, I have a little group of friends within the ultra running community <laughs> and we have a WhatsApp group and they're all, everybody's always winding each other up. So when we were doing um, Capital to Country, I was fortunate enough to win the first stage. Now, there was relatively not that many competitors, so it's all taken with a pinch of salt. But then they all thought it was hilarious. And so uh, because <laughs> so they were winding me up and I didn't win any of the other stages and came second overall. So um, that was that was all fun. And I think it, it kind of contributes to a different dimension whilst we were out there. Yeah. Um, the rest of my reputation for being a little bit competitive is entirely based on when I've been pacing events and I've been trying to uh, pull out my best motivational chat for the last 25 miles of 100 mile races for people, which always depends on things like I like to play games like how many, what's the net number of people you think we're going to pass between 80 and 100 miles? <laughs> I'll buy you a beer if you're right and all that kind of things, just to kind of find find little games to pass the time <laughs> yeah having spoken to a few people who've done like 100 mile races and that's something i've never been anywhere near myself but but i think those those sort of games are are, are really important and I, I remember speaking to a couple of lads who did 145 miles i think it was uh, on the grand union canal and they were saying it literally got to the point where they were just counting lampposts and gets to the next lamppost and and talking yeah. about who they were hallucinating about as they went along well, I've been uh, I've been lucky enough to do three hundreds now, and each time I've had paces for the second half. And I think just having a change of company is really helpful. But if they've come along with little tactics of something to distract you with, that's certainly a big help for me. I'm sure yeah. some people might get annoyed by it, and I probably have annoyed some others when I've been pacing them. But whatever it takes. <laughs> And, and what's it like as a, I think it's fairly common now, but what's it like as a, as a woman in the ultra running world? Because I think there's probably a time where it, it perhaps wasn't so common. Uh, that's another hot topic, isn't it? There's a lot of conversation about um, female runners, particularly but, on some of these longer trail events. Yeah, to the extent that a lot of people now are saying that actually genetically women are better better made if that's the right word for doing these very long events and are actually getting better and better times than a lot of the men now personally I don't I don't really notice a massive difference 
I do notice that there's obviously a significantly lower number of women on the start line yeah. of most events, if not every event I've ever been to. I am not sure if that's being driven by confidence issues or something like childcare issues, which I think certainly from my perspective is probably one of the drivers. So I do think there's an element and I'm massively generalizing that you know, women feel like they have to seek permission for having the kids looked after, whereas men probably end up more likely to just book events and, and tell their wives they're doing this. <laughs> um, so that 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 is one juggle amongst many others. I'm glad to see that it's improving. And I think the conversation that is um, very live on social media and, and I know organisations such as She Races are doing quite a lot to engage the uh, race directors to to make changes to toilet facilities and pregnancy deferral policies and I think all of those are going to be positive things if they help a number of women engage who wouldn't have done previously and and level the playing field in that sense but I think probably each individual's concerns are quite specific and it probably varies quite a lot but but who knows hopefully it will start to improve and especially when we've got some great role models like Jasmine Paris yeah. and Courtney Dalwater and there's some kind of real interesting stories starting to, to hit the headline about women doing really well and winning outright some of these mm. events um, which is certainly getting a lot of interest which is great. Yeah I think it certainly seems to be changing and that, that can only be a, a good thing and I think um, from some race directors and run directors who I've spoken to you know, they a, think it's a good thing in terms of just a good thing morally, I suppose. But also, you know, more women enter and it's more people entering their races. So I think it's it's got to be good for, for everyone and good for the sport. I think the pregnancy deferral ones are really interesting discussions because my experience through two pregnancies is I ran a 50 mile race at 16 weeks pregnant and I ran three road marathons and didn't have an issue but ran within myself at a very comfortable speed that I knew wasn't kind of putting my body under any pressure I did first time round end up running a 45 miler 16 weeks after giving birth and that was probably physically more challenging than the other way than doing it when pregnant but I looked into some more strenuous events and concluded it probably wasn't the right thing and I actually reached out to somebody else and asked asked about this to Sophie Powers um, who you may be aware of who, who um, is very involved in she races and I think there's a bit of a conclusion around just because you can doesn't mean you should and mm. you know in, in her situation when she ended up doing UTMB and there's the very now well-known photo of her with a breast pump on one side and a baby on the other yeah um it was because they didn't have a deferral policy and she'd been trying for several years to try and get into UTMB. And when she finally got there, eventually, you know, she had a small baby. So she really didn't have a choice if she wanted to do the event at that stage. And so she very sensibly said to me, why, why, why push yourself to, to do some of these tricky events at a stage when your body's kind of needed for other things. And I think that was um, good advice at the time. Yeah, I, I guess, and this is probably a a bit of a, a lazy comparison, but I, I I suppose if you've if someone's got a, a, an injury, they wouldn't necessarily push themselves to to do a race, and most times they'd be able to defer. 
and that kind of should be i don't want to kind of compare pregnancy to an injury but it effect, it has kind of some of the same effects doesn't it so the same policies should be in place for for women who are pregnant for sure for sure i think where there's a nuance between injury injury and pregnancy <laughs> we don't quite often compare <laughs> is that i've i've heard of people getting rejected for championship places asking for pregnancy referral because indication is you're likely to come back slower than faster after an injury and people have had to go well I'm not actually injured it's very different yeah in a year's time I'm probably going to be in a great place so um yeah all very interesting topical uh, conversation happening at the moment and I think a lot a lot of events are, are sitting up and listening and changing their policies which is great um, and great for women in sport yeah, definitely. And what's next on the uh, agenda for, for you? What's coming up in 2024 since we're just weeks into a new year? Oh, interesting. Well, probably nothing quite so um, extreme. I think uh, I I daren't try and get another multi-stage event in this year from, <laughs> for reasons we talked about earlier around uh, <laughs> requesting time away from the family, which is is obviously important priority in my life but I've got a few road races including London Marathon which I'm lucky enough to be doing most years so I I still enjoy the experience of the crowds and then um, I have a couple of 50 milers in the diary later in the year so I really want to focus on road racing for the next three months and then go back to a bit of trail racing afterwards so probably one in May and one in November for 50 milers and then who knows what might come up in between? To be honest, if somebody texts me and says, are you in for, for this race or that race? The answer is normally yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and with, that, with that kind of attitude of jumping into races when when someone twists your arm gently on social media or, or whatever and, and doing 50 milers and so on, is your training a case of staying at a certain level all the time rather than necessarily training specifically for a race or, or a bit of both? a little bit of both but yes to an extent so I've always been a run commuter and therefore I have a base level of mileage low intensity you know I crack out 40 50 miles a week just in commuting and then do my long runs and interval training on top of that so I probably get a bit more lazy with my long runs and intervals when uh, I'm not focusing on a particular event but um, otherwise it's fairly consistent. It doesn't vary massively. Is running slowly the the winner there when when getting ready for ultras? I think you can't really do high volume events without high volume in your training somewhere. But I'm probably guilty of not having a very considered training plan, and I'm sure that the the guys that are or and girls that are much faster than me are. <laughs> probably more um, scientific in their approach to maximising their speed. I I just want to make sure I I get through the events, enjoy them and don't get injured. And (laughs) despite the reputation for being competitive, um, (laughs) so having lots of volume under my belt is a a positive thing from that perspective. But I probably have got too many miles in my legs to a certain extent. I'm not sure I'm going to be PBing marathons anytime soon. You've mentioned children. I'm not quite sure how old they are now, but are they at the stage now where they're um, either like you, hating running because mummy's doing it or or starting to love it for exactly the same reason? Well, that's actually a great question. So I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old. They 
both do junior park run on a Sunday morning. So it's 2K and my little girl at only three has finished her first two park runs in the last two weeks. So I'm super proud of her, but more importantly from actually completing it, that she did the whole lot with a massive smile on her face. Absolutely loved it because I've been buggy running with her for the last few years, which is a skill in itself, but she's been present with her big brother in the buggy. And I think she's felt a bit restricted by it and definitely wanting to get involved. So park run don't technically let them run till they're four, but they've all been really good. And I think we're going off on a slight tangent here, but park run has added I think adds massive value to sport in the country in terms of it provides entry into sport. It's free. Um, I love the enthusiasm of all the organisers and volunteers who show up every week and particularly for junior park run when they're not running themselves in that event. But often it's the same faces every week and I think it's brilliant. And I think it's a lovely way for kids to get involved on in a in a safe environment and to do their little bit, but without having to at all be competitive. And there's a lot of emphasis around just get out and enjoy it and do what you can. And if you have to cut a bit off the course, that's fine. Or if you have to walk a little bit, that's fine. Or if somebody, I mean, <laughs> my kids often need a wee part way around, which <laughs> over the course of 15 minutes is <laughs> kind of hilarious, but part of the gig. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think doing um, doing a couple of K at three years old, that, that is like um, a three-year-old's ultramarathon, isn't it? Well, I like to think so. Hopefully she'll turn into a mummy's girl, but she won't, be, uh, she won't be forced down that route. I think it's just good to have a try of lots of different sports and see what suits you. <laughs> and yeah. I always tell people when they say to me, oh, my kids aren't sporty, I always say, well, you know, I didn't start till I was 21. <laughs> and now... It's not just running. I'm. I'm. My life is full of sport. <laughs> and if you were just finally, if if you were to be speaking to someone who might not be sure about starting, well, I suppose a running at all, and then b taking a, the next step onto uh, longer longer distances, perhaps even ultras. What would you What would you say to them? Are the are the big advantages, and why should they Why should they give it a go? I think for most of us, we're only racing against ourselves. So whilst people talk about racing and entering races, unless you're in the elite few that are likely to be winning it, the enjoyment is your personal progression. And and so it's a fairly safe environment. And certainly as a originating as a, a slow runner, I've been through that journey of kind of feeling like I'm back of the pack all the time and then finally working my way up to middle of the pack and that's a, a great feeling to see the progress without feeling like it's a threatening environment to be in. I think everybody is genuinely very welcome in pretty well every cl- running club or every event that I've ever been to has been very welcoming and actually quite diverse. And I think it doesn't matter if you need to walk or if you need to take your foot off the gas a little bit. A, I think welcoming, B, I think achievement, and in to the other part of your question around taking the next step, I think that kind of is an inevitable for most people after having a number of events at a certain distance. You're either going to get faster or you go further. And <laughs> that's kind of everybody's journey eventually. I definitely remember the days going, oh, I could never run a full marathon. And then it's a uh, I'm not sure I could ever do a 50k and then 50k becomes 50 miles and then 50 miles becomes 
100 miles and so and so on. Yeah, it just uh, always continues to progress. And the amount of time that I hear people do one marathon and they go, oh, never again. And you think, just give it a year. <laughs> Definitely. Well, from uh, those of us listening, thinking either never again or I won't be able to do that to, to people who know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, Ellen, thank you so much for uh, for coming on and talking to us today on the Running Tales podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks again to Helen Ramwell for joining us on the Running Tales podcast. I really hope you enjoyed our conversation just as much as I did. If you're able to give us a positive review and rating, we really value that. We're also available on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook, on YouTube and on Instagram. And of course, you can find our Substack newsletter at www.runningtales.substack.com. So please check that out and subscribe. Thanks again for joining us on this week's Running Tales podcast. And I'll see you again next week for another Running Tale.